passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, it is, uh, it's good to be with you this morning as we um, continue um, our sermon series on spiritual health. What does it mean to be spiritually healthy? Uh, over the last couple of weeks, month or so, we've been uh, asking ourselves, um, am I spiritually healthy? Not wanting to just assume that that's something that is the case, but really having uh, questions or diagnostics that we can look at uh, to say, yeah, I am spiritually healthy or I need to work in this area. I, I'm, I'm not mature in, in this area and whatnot. Um, reminder that the idea of, well, I'm mature or I'm healthy just because I've been a Christian for a, for a long time um, is not something that the Bible um, really gives us a picture of. Um, and so we want to ask ourselves questions that will allow us to say, yeah, I am, or these are areas that I can work on. Perhaps the overarching theme of this sermon series on spiritual health has really been tied to our purpose in life, that God has created each of us with a purpose. And that purpose is to bring him glory with our entire lives, that, that everything we do um, Sunday mornings as well as throughout the week would be something that we um, are able to give God glory with. The worship is what this is called. Worship isn't just something that um, is, is something we do for a couple hours a week on Sunday mornings, but really should be a part of our entire lives. The last couple of weeks, we've looked at Romans chapter 12, verse 1. We've been reciting this passage, referring to this passage number of times during our sermon series. It says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your, your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And one of the things we're going to see this morning as we consider the idea of good works, or are we zealous for good works with our lives, is that one of the ways we worship God is through our good works. In other words, one of the ways that we declare the worth of God, that's just what worship really is, declaring the worth of something. One of the ways that we declare the worth of God is to live a life of good works. And now, that term good works is a very church term. It's a Christian term. It's used a lot of times in Christian circles. What exactly does it mean? So let's take a moment to define what the Bible has in mind when it talks about good works. First and foremost, we see very clearly in Scripture that good works cannot earn us salvation from God. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul makes that very clear. He says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And this morning we're going to be in Titus chapter 2. And one of the things that's going to be very clear in Titus, Titus 2 is that a right relationship with God is an act of grace alone. It's not something that we can do. It doesn't matter how much good we do in our lives. It's not going to change our status in God's eyes. And yet at the same time, good works are by their very nature good. They are good things. They're, they're worth pursuing with our lives. You're not going to get to the end of your life and say, man, I wish I would have spent a whole lot less time pursuing good works. Good works are an act of worship. They are near to God's heart. And to illustrate how, how much God values good works, let me ask you a question, something to, to consider. Why does God save people? In other words, why does Jesus go to the cross? 
We probably all know the Sunday school answer is because Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And that's absolutely true, but it's not the only reason that we see in Scripture. The scriptures give us a number of reasons why Jesus goes to the cross, why God offers salvation to people. The Bible gives us a whole host of reasons of why Jesus did that. Many times the Bible tells us that God saves people as a sign of his own righteousness or a sign of his own faithfulness or a sign of grace. Sometimes the Bible tells us that God saves people for his own glory or oftentimes in the book of Ezekiel, it's for the sake of my name. One of my favorite passages in the entire Bible, Ephesians chapter 2, we've already referenced it, one verse in particular stands out to me about why God saves his people. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 7 says this, but God made us alive with Christ, that's actually in verses 4 or 5, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now we ask ourselves, what exactly is that verse saying? Notice the so that. There's a purpose here in salvation. We are being made alive with Christ for a reason. And one of the reasons why God saves people is so that the redeemed, those who are saved, are proof positive that God is kind. So consider this. For all eternity... Your resurrection, if you are a follower of Jesus, for all eternity will be a billboard declaring to all of creation of God's immeasurable grace, his unsearchable glory, his unending kindness toward you. That when people encounter you in the new creation, they will be reminded of God's unending kindness. When people interact with me, they, you see me in the new creation, you're going to say, wow, God is so kind that you're actually here. Your salvation is a reminder of God's unending kindness and patience, of how long he was willing to wait for you to turn to him. The very fact that heaven will not be empty that new creation will be filled with a multitude of people from every language, nation, tribe, and tongue is a declaration for all eternity that God is kind. So you see, one of the reasons why God saves people is for a proof of his own character. It's because he loves us. We also see another reason, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to see that God saves people not just because he loves you, which is true, but also because he wants you to live a life of good works. Have you ever considered that? That one of the reasons why God saved you, if you were a follower of Jesus, is so that you would live differently than the people who are around you. That he saved you so that you would live a life that right now begins to reflect the values of his forever kingdom. In fact, a, a, a good picture of what the Bible means when we talk about good works is this lifestyle that sets us apart from the rest of the world. It's this life that reflects the values of Jesus' forever kingdom. So when we talk about good works, when the Bible talks about good works, it means something more than just doing random acts of kindness. We're going to soon see in, in Titus in Titus chapter 2, the first 10 verses of, of Titus 2, Paul goes through very detailed, looking at specific 
areas of life, different circumstances that people find themselves in and says, so this is what it looks like for you to live a life of good works in your specific circumstances. If you want to see some specifics, go ahead and, and on your own this afternoon, read Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, of what it means for God to say, I've saved you so that you can live a life of good works. So specific examples given there at the beginning of the chapter. If we're going to define what it means to, to live a life of good works, well, let's start by defining good works themselves. This is the way I've, I've described it. Good works are obedience to Jesus, for Jesus, by the power of Jesus. Good works are obedience to Jesus, for Jesus, by the power of Jesus. Good works are determined by God's word, not by our culture, not by us. They are obedience to Jesus and his revealed will. God has revealed to us exactly what is good. We don't have to go around guessing what does it mean to please God. We have the scriptures. The prophet Micah reminds us of this truth. He says this, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. We're not left guessing. He has told you what is good. He's already revealed to us what he considers to be good in his word. Now, not only are good deeds, good works, obedience to Jesus, they're also done with a specific motive in mind. They're done for Jesus, that they're an actual act of worship. They're not done out of obligation. They aren't done out of the sense of duty. They aren't done out of, of selfishness for my own gain. They're done because of a love for Jesus. That good works are also done not just out of our own strength, but, but really they're done by the power of Jesus as well. The Bible makes it clear the Holy Spirit is the one who enables us to grow more like Jesus. And if you're taking God's calling on your life seriously to live this life of good works, then the only way you'll be able to do it, the only way you'll be able to be obedient to Jesus, to live for Jesus, is by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in you, the, the, the power of Jesus. Good works are obedience to Jesus, for Jesus, by the power of Jesus. And for the Apostle Paul, when he talks about good works, it's really just shorthand for this idea of living a life like Jesus. No one else has ever lived a life that is completely obedient to the commands of God. No one else has, have, has lived a life of, of motivation solely by the glory of God alone. No one else has lived a life that is spirit-led like Jesus. And so if you want to, to live a life of good works, then a, a good place to start is just by looking at Jesus, looking at how Jesus lives his life. So what I want us to do the rest of our time this morning is I actually just want us to, to ask, consider, how essential are good works in the Christian life uh, we're going to see this from Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. We're going to work our way through this, this text by asking ourselves three questions that, that this passage actually answers. If you have a Bible, uh, please follow along as I read aloud, starting Titus chapter 2, verse 11. It says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all, from all lawlessness and to purify himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Let's pray. 
Fathers, we turn our attention to the call of being a people of good works. We first thank you for passages such as this that make it clear that a life of good works come from the overflow of the grace of God that has appeared to bring salvation for all people, for people like us. God, this morning we ask that as we consider this passage, you would, um, you would stir our hearts that you would strengthen us, that you would make us a people who are indeed zealous for good works. We ask that you would produce within every single person here a zeal within ourselves to do good. And we know that we need your help. And so we ask that you would do just that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, if we were under any illusion that uh, the, the good works that we do, um, what, what purpose they have, this passage really, really answers that question. It, it puts those questions to, to rest. The passage begins by asking this question, what is the foundation of the Christian life? And, and we're reminded of the gospel from the very beginning. Titus chapter 2, verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So any discussion on the importance of good works in the Christian life, it has to start with this reminder. It's that the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared, and it's that grace of God that brings salvation for us doesn't come out of any merit or work of our own. That at long last, in Jesus, we see God revealing his grace and his plan to save people. The Old Testament is really just one big story about people longing for the grace of God to be revealed. The expectation of the prophets was that God would establish his kingdom by delivering his people from their enemies, and he would do so in one fell swoop. They couldn't imagine the greatness of their need. The greatest need that they had was not to be delivered from Rome or to be delivered from Assyria or any of their oppressors. Their greatest need was for God to deliver them from the pain and the chains of sin. They didn't understand the greatness of their need. They also didn't understand the greatness of God's plan to save people. The greatest need of every human isn't to be delivered from physical enemies. It is for someone to take care of the debt of sin and wrongdoing. As people, we have all replaced the plan of God with our own plan. We've all replaced the worship of God with the worship of ourselves with other things, and the Bible calls this sin, and because God is supremely holy, he cannot, be taint, he cannot abide the presence of those who are tainted by sin. And you see how the Bible story makes it clear that good works on their own cannot save us, that there is this debt that is owed, and the good things that we were supposed to be doing the entire time, these good works, they are not able to save us. They are not able to erase the debt that all of us find ourselves in. But then we get to Titus chapter 2, verse 11. And we can say, thank God that the grace of God appeared in Jesus. He takes this debt that we could not pay, and he gives us this right standing before God that we could never earn. Jesus makes a way for us to enter into God's presence once again. That's the foundation of the Christian life. It's the grace of Jesus in the gospel. But Paul doesn't just say that this grace of God is the key to salvation. He also says that this grace of God does something in, in addition to just bringing us into the family of God. 
In other words, it doesn't just get us into the door and then we are left to fend for ourselves. It's, it's something else that the grace of God is doing, this gospel is doing. Check out verse 12. Actually, I'll, I'll just start in verse 11 again. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. We'll take a look at the specifics here in a moment, but just don't miss the heart of what Paul's saying. For the grace of God has appeared, and then we jump forward, and we see that the grace of God has appeared, and it is training us to live. So the gospel, in addition to saving us, is doing something in our lives, is training us to live in a certain way. That's the, the heart of Paul's statement here. The, God, the grace of God trains us to live a certain way. It's not just that, that the grace of God saves us at the beginning, it actually enables us to live lives based on the priorities of God, his gospel in our lives. If we have any hope, to live a life of good works, we need the grace of God. Today, tomorrow, every day. The grace of God doesn't just save us, it also trains us. It instructs us on how to live like Jesus, to live a life of good works. So that's the foundation of the Christian life. A life of good works is rooted in the grace of the gospel from the beginning to the end. Let me say that again. The, a life of good works is rooted in the grace of the gospel from the beginning to the end. There's not a day where following Jesus, when we're following Jesus, that we don't need the grace of the gospel. There's not a day where we're going to find ourselves saying, you know what, this is an optional add-on, this idea of grace. I need it every single day. That's why we define good works as obedience to Jesus, for Jesus, by the power of of Jesus. We need the grace of God to enable us to live a life that is pleasing to God. A life of good works is rooted in the grace of the gospel from the beginning to the end. Let's continue. We, we see that the, the grace of the gospel trains us or instructs us, but what exactly is that training? What is that instruction? What is the found? We, we know that the, the foundation of the Christian life is the gospel, but what do good works look like? Well, if you were to observe thousands of different Christians, if you were to, to go back to the, the beginning of the church 2,000 years ago, you were to go all over the globe, is there something that unites that had all of these, this, this plan, this desire of God to have people who are zealous for good works? Is there something that unites all of these different people together? And that's what we see in Titus chapter 2, that there are key markers for what good works actually look like, regardless of your time, regardless of your culture, regardless of your circumstances. Titus chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. These verses actually reveal three characteristics of the Christian life. First, we see this, a, a life of good works should be one that increasingly abandons the bad. If you want to live a life of good works, it means that you should be increasingly abandoning the bad. That's what Paul says here when he talks about this grace of God training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. We should not be surprised 
that the gospel calls us to live differently than those who are around us. We should not be surprised when we live in a different way because we have different priorities, different affections, that we respond differently when we've been wronged or we find ourselves under pressure. Notice how, how Peter describes it in 1 Peter. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So notice, Peter is saying the exact same thing as Paul. He's just using different language. As Christians, we're no longer controlled by the passions that control us, that control those who are around us, and it's because we are sojourners and exiles. I'm convinced that one of the most important, if not the most important thing that you can take to heart in order to faithfully follow Jesus in this world is to grasp what it means to be a sojourner and an exile. That is true for you. That is true for the next generation. Christians have always been sojourners in this world. We've always been called to be different than the world that is around us. That's not new. And yet, in our cultural time, in this moment, it is increasingly apparent in a post-Christian world A life of following Jesus, a life of good works, means that you are going to have different values. You're going to have different priorities. That your life, what what kind of media you consume, how you spend your time, how you spend your money, how, how you guide your conversations, all of those things should be noticeably different than those who are outside the church. Christians are those who are without a home in this present world. And because the kingdom of God is not of this present world, that is our home, we are sojourners, we are exiles, we are longing for our true home. Paul, in Titus chapter 2, verse 12, is very clear about how sharp this break should be with the world and the old self. He says, renounce. He says, abandon. This isn't this gradual weaning off. He says, no, completely get rid of it. Utterly abandon the old way. If you're concerned with good works, then that means that you are embarking on this commitment, this this plan, this, this pattern of life to live a life abandoning the world, abandoning its ways, and living instead like Jesus. A Christian's life should be one that increasingly abandons the bad. Now, that's not all we see here. We also see that a life of good works should be one that increasingly pursues the good. Paul gives us a sample of this when he says that we are called to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. It's not enough to get rid of the old ways, but a life of good works is primarily a life concerned with this life that doesn't just abstain, but a life that honors Jesus with what it does. Notice the good that Paul mentions here in these verses. First, he mentions that we should live self-controlled lives. Self-control is a dying virtue today. And I'm not sure there's anything more important than self-control for living a God-honoring life. A self-controlled life is not passive. Most of the time, the, the default state of our lives is to just let life happen to us. 
Many people wake up each and every day and life just happens to them. There is no direction. There is no guidance. There's no guiding principle of our lives. And as such, we just have this tendency to drift where the current of the day is taking us. I want you to just picture that you are canoeing down a river. Without paddling, which direction are you going to go? You're going to follow the current of the river. It takes control. It takes guidance. It takes direction to steer a canoe to where you want to go. And that's what self-control is in your life. It's essential for a life of good works to have self-control because good works aren't just going to happen. That's not just what happens without concentrated, grace-driven self-control. Paul not only says we have to be self-controlled, he also says that we have to live upright and godly lives. I love these two connected to one another. Upright is very horizontal. It's how we interact with other people, that we should pursue, go out of our way to live relationships of justice, to live relationships of kindness toward those who are around us. Godly is very vertical, that we live a life that is like God, that is, that is lived in the sight of God every moment of our lives. That's what it means to live a life like Jesus. Elsewhere, Paul describes this spirit-directed life increasingly looking a different way, which I think is appropriate for us to consider. Galatians chapter five. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Do you want to, to, be, to use Paul's language here from the end of verse 14? Do you want to be zealous for good works? Then if you want to be zealous for good works, we start right here. Through the Spirit's power to pursue the fruit of the Spirit, to pursue love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's the mark of a true Christian, a person who is zealous for good works, the one in whom the Spirit of God is working as a person who is increasingly pursuing the good, the only things that are worth pursuing in this life. Paul gives us a, a final description of a, of a life of good works. He says this, that a life of good works should be one that increasingly longs for Jesus' return. A life that increasingly longs for Jesus' return. Notice verse 13 again, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our great uh, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The overarching motivation, the growing hope of the Christian is the age to come. Notice how verse 12 ends. Paul says that we are to live godly lives in this present age, and then he immediately contrasts that present age with this eventual return of Christ. And, and notice the significance of this. First, this is the overarching motivation for the Christian's life today. Contrasting the present age with the return of Christ, Paul is suggesting that what a spirit-led Christian should do today is live in such a way that the everlasting, eternal kingdom of God is actually breaking into our lives right now. That we would be self-controlled and that the controlling and guiding principle of our lives would be the future coming of Jesus. But the return of Christ is not just our motivation, certainly is, it's also our increasing hope. The more that we abandon the bad, the more that we pursue the good, the more our hopes, our affections are turned toward the life with Jesus 
to come. No wonder Paul calls the return of Christ our blessed hope. It is indeed our hope because the more that we turn our hearts to Jesus and his return, the more we long for it. This is true in all of life. The more we pursue something, whether it is our spouse or our job, whether it is the Lord Jesus or our possessions, the more it controls our heart, the more it consumes our hopes and our thoughts and our dreams. And what Paul is saying is that our hearts should be increasingly captured by an increasing longing for Jesus' return. And the more that we feed that longing, that desire, the more it will grow. So we ask ourselves, if, we're, if we want to live a life of good works, do I long for Jesus' return more than I did five years ago? Has it captured my heart? Is this my motivation for living a, a gospel-centered life? Is, is this my great hope in this life? The rest of the passage gives us a glimpse at the heart of Jesus and why he saves people. We're given this incredible gift from God that he actually gives us insight into why he saves people, his very heart. Verse 14 gives us three reasons why God saves people. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to, pursue, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Before we jump into the three, three, three reasons God saves people, can we just marvel at the beauty of the way that Titus descri Paul describes to Titus this act of salvation? Because our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, gave himself. What does it mean that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation in verse 12? It means that Jesus offered himself on your behalf. And that he did so willingly. He did so eagerly. Why? First, we see it was for us. Notice the beginning of verse 14. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Jesus gave himself for those who are now his adopted brothers and sisters in the family of God. He knows, he knew that we were trapped in sin and lawlessness, that we were unable to free ourselves from our hellbound captivity, and he gave himself freely to free us from death forever. So why does God save people? First, he does it for us. Second reason in verse 14, why does God save people? It's for himself. Who gave himself to purify for himself a people of his own possession. So God saves people for us. He also saves people for himself. In other words, Jesus doesn't just die so that we can be saved from this unthinkable future. He does it because Jesus wants a pure and holy people who belong to him. Have you ever considered that Jesus didn't just save you because you were in desperate need of saving, even though that's very true, but because he wants a people for all eternity who are his own, that he can dwell with forever, that when he frees us from slavery to sin, now we have this new master, that we are now his possession the beginning of Ephesians, actually, Paul is praying for the Ephesian church. 
as he's praying for the Ephesian church, he actually prays that the Spirit would, would give people the eyes to see that God understands, longs for us as his possession, that we are his inheritance. What an astounding thought. When Jesus saves people, it's not just for us, but it's also for himself. Third reason, Jesus saves people for good. For he gave, who gave himself to purify for himself a people who are zealous for good works. What does it mean that when Jesus saves people, he purifies a people? It means that there is this purpose to the new life that we have been given in Jesus, a life that is zealous for good works. In the gospel, Jesus transforms our hearts. He transforms our affections. The people of God are not just to be this people who begrudgingly do good works or only do good works when it is convenient for them. They should be a people who are zealous for good works. And I, I love that word zealous, but I also really don't like that word zealous because there's no getting around it. There's no way to excuse away or rationalize away this idea of being zealous. Zealous is the opposite of being rational. When I think of zealous, being zealous, I, I think of what you are known for. When, when people, you interact with someone for the first time and you, get to get, you begin to get to know them, you, you begin to, oh, that's what that person is zealous for. So, I've gotten to know some people, and I think, man, you are zealous for sports. That's all you talk about. Earlier today, someone came up to me, and they noticed that I had, some, I, I had uh, Iowa Hawkeye socks on. Like, oh, you must really like the Hawkeyes. I, well, yeah, that's true. The real reason is because I was half asleep when I got dressed this morning, and <laughs> by the time I realized, I was too late. But some of us are, are zealous for sports. That's all we think about. That's just what comes out. It bubbles out of us. I've met other people that all they seem to talk about is eating healthy and working out and doing all those types of things. And, and you, you interact with those people and they're like, oh, they're, they're zealous for physical health. Not a bad thing. You interact with other people and all they can talk about is the newest phone or the newest gadget or the newest technology. And you're like, oh, they're, they're zealous. They're passionate about those types of things. What if when people got to know us, that the thing that they thought of was, man, your life revolves around good works, that it revolves around obedience to Jesus, for Jesus, by the power of Jesus? What if people, when they thought of you, immediately thought, that's a person who is zealous for good works? That is why Jesus saved you. It's not the only reason. But it's a big reason why Jesus has saved you, that, that you, that his church would be zealous for good works. What does your life say about you? What are you zealous for? When people encounter you, would their lasting impression be that's a person who's zealous for good works? Or would it be something else? What if our church... People interact with someone from Crosswinds or 
And they say, well, that's a people who are zealous for good works. That's a people who are, are zealous for serving one another, serving others. Are we pursuing this reputation in our community of self-sacrifice, of service to others, of love? Are we doing that when we interact with one another, that we go out of our ways to serve one another, go out of our ways to show good works to one another? Are we a people who are zealous for good works? That's the heart of this message on spiritual health this morning, that Jesus gave himself for you to be zealous for good works. Jesus gave himself for you to be zealous for good works. So are you? Are you bearing the fruit of the Spirit? Are you increasingly abandoning the bad and pursuing the good? Are you increasingly longing for Jesus' return? Are you actively seeking out ways to love others, to serve others inside the church, outside the church? Jesus gave himself for you to be zealous for good works. Listen, I don't, I don't have a really specific application to this. Like, as a response to this text, it's not going to, it's not like I'm going to say, and here's our new church initiative. Sign up today. Or kids camp, you know, or kids ministry. We've got lots of holes there. There's not a specific application. And yet if we're not actively thinking of ways that we should be pursuing good works, as the people of God, then consider this. To not live a life zealous for good works is to actively stand against one of the reasons why God saved you. To put it a different way, you're actually opposing the will of God for your life. Your purpose in life. That Jesus has given himself for you so that you would be zealous for good works. I mentioned that this previous passage, Titus 2, 1 through 10, gives us some specific examples of what good works are. And, and in that section, Paul addresses these various subsections of the church, older men, older women, younger women, younger men, and then he talks to, to bond servants. And how good works work themselves out in these different areas or spheres of life and at the end of that section, Paul says something incredibly powerful about the purpose or the why of good works. We actually looked at it last week. We're talking about witness. Titus chapter 2, verse 10. Why good works? So that in everything they, and I would change that to you, may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Why should you be zealous for good works? Why should we be a people of good works? It's because good works adorn the, the doctrine, the teachings, the gospel of God our Savior. By being zealous for good works, we are showing that they are beautiful. But it's not a beauty that distracts from the gospel. Beautiful good works adorn an already beautiful gospel and make that already beautiful gospel somehow even more beautiful, even more appealing even more glorious in the eyes of other people. Jesus gave himself for you to be zealous for good works. 
Are you? Let's pray. Jesus, I confess that I want to be zealous for good works. And yet all too often, good works are something that's only when it's convenient. Or when it's on my timetable or schedule. And not necessarily an act of sacrifice. Forgive me for that, God. Would you in your grace and mercy help us? Give each of us a heart, a passion, a desire to be people who are zealous for good works, who are zealous about obedience to Jesus, for Jesus, by the power of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.